Uh, God loves us, and his plan is to have us uh, relate to one another, and it is through our relationships with one another that he more fully reveals his love and uh, deepens ultimately our experience of him. So we're back in Corinthians. We have had a break over the summer, but uh, we are back. We're going to do a quick summary. Here's the big idea. The culture is having too big an influence on the church in Corinth. And Paul's encouraging them to get a bigger view of, uh, of Jesus. Now, we just finished a summer series where we were dealing with a bunch of cultural issues. Uh, transgender, uh, cancel culture, politics. Uh, 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 maybe you were here for a part of this. And we looked at these things affecting our culture, these, these cultural trends, and we backed into how should we as those who treasure Christ view these issues? And most importantly, how should we relate to those outside of the church, those who don't hold those views. And I would say our, our summary in one sense is, let's be informed, let's be involved in people's lives out there in the, in the world and in the culture, and how about we be kind? Should the church change? We can improve on how we're giving the good news of Jesus to the folks out in the world. We, we actually can do better. Are we going to change our stance that Jesus is the only way to heaven? We are not. And that walking with Christ gets expressed in certain ways? We are not going to move at all. But the summer series was about, we're looking at these cultural issues. How should we as believers respond to the culture? What Paul's doing in Corinthians, and those of you who were here last year probably remember, or, or last spring... He's talking about how the culture is influencing the church, but it's not so much about how they directly should relate to the culture. What Paul's trying to help them understand and us understand is when we buy the values of the culture, it's actually damaging to us. It's hurting us. When we don't live in the most Christ-like way with one another, it hurts us. And we as a fellowship, the primary way the world knows that we belong to Christ is our love for one another. So we're dealing with the outside cultural issues. We deal with how do we deal with those outside the culture. When we go back to Corinthians, it's about let's be careful about the culture impacting us too much because it's going to do damage to our fellowship and to our relationships here. The foundation of this. Paul, in most of his letters, gives the foundation for how he wants people to live in half of the letter. Here, he gives it in nine verses. But we want to see the whole book through these nine verses. And here's what he says in those nine verses. All who have met Christ and treasure him have undergone a radical, life-transforming and altering experience. We have experienced God's grace. There is nothing better. He has given us every spiritual gift we need, and he's promised that Jesus is going to be with us, and he's going to help us through this mess until that day when Jesus returns. Oh, man, that's going to be a great day. This is a tremendous life we have in Christ. Now, everything he writes in this book needs to be seen through this lens, who we are in Christ. But then he's going to go on and he's going to start expressing how the values of the culture have impacted them in the expression. And he begins by giving one right at the beginning of the book. And he says, there's not the unity that there should be among you. That is really a lousy sign. The reality is in Christ, y'all ought to be united. 
Then he starts talking about the problem. The problem is that it's essence this. The culture's wisdom is completely different from the wisdom of God. If you don't know God, the culture's wisdom makes sense. But once you meet God, you look at the world differently. And you're being too influenced by the wisdom of the world, he's saying to Corinth. You are not expressing the mind of Christ. Now, may that be true of us here at RCC? Oh, probably not. We're just talking about the other churches. We're just talking about the other churches where the mind of Christ isn't being that fully expressed. Uh, uh, is there a possibility? And then what he does is he starts unloading on this church. And he's going to walk through several expressions where the culture is impacting. The first one is you're arrogant. You ought to be expressing an appropriate humility that comes from loving Christ. Secondly, you're okay with sexually immoral behavior. You ought to be finding a joy in Jesus that keeps you from pursuing immorality. You're not resolving conflict with another. You're offending one another. Now, I'm just going to suggest that's a reality of living in this world, even for those of us who treasure Christ. The problem is they're taking one another to court. The reality is we ought to be loving one another in a way that demonstrates forgiveness. You're engaged in illicit romantic relationships. They are justifying stuff that is immoral. Again, we ought to be finding a joy in Jesus that makes immorality less appealing. You have a lousy views of marriage and singleness. The reality is if we love Christ, we ought to be finding so much joy in him that it encourages us to embrace our marital status, whatever it is. He's not saying it shouldn't change, but he's saying find our identity in Christ. And here's where we're going to go today. We're going to do the entire chapter. I'm going to talk fast. Here's the big idea. He's already alluded to it. Generally, he's going to get more specific, but you're self-focused and you're not considering the other perspective of other believers as much as you should. And this is not good. And this is what the culture does. The culture says, it's all about me. Give me my rights. It's not with those who find their identity in Christ. That's not how they view the world. So, Lord, I pray that you help us as we get back into this word where we're confident you inspired. I pray that you would speak to our minds, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Ah, we want to be filled with Jesus. We want to be encouraged in Jesus. We want to have more hope in Jesus, and we want to express genuinely more of the love of Jesus. That's our prayer, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, here's the big idea. Giving it to you from the beginning. We ought to be happily forfeiting our rights for the good of our brothers and sisters. Now, how many of you would love your brothers and sisters to forfeit their rights for your benefit? May I see your hands? Wouldn't that be great? If our brothers and sisters would forfeit their rights, oh, I hope they're listening because this is their opportunity to be nicer to me. Here we go. Oh, there's the title. Free in Christ to live with restraint. 
So I'm going to follow the logic of the text. I got five points that I'm going to move us through here that I think Paul is making to help us get us to this place where we will happily forfeit our rights for the good of others. The first one is this one. Too often knowledge begets arrogance. We figure something out. We get the truth. And maybe we have just a little more confidence than we ought to have. Now, concerning food offered idols, we're going to be dealing with food offered idols. He's going to unpack this in the next three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. This is the context from which he's delivering spiritual truths. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, this paragraph, I believe, is an introduction not only for chapter 8, but for chapters 8, 9, and 10. And he's laying a foundation, and he's laying, if you will, again, another lens for us to see what he's going to say about food offered to idols. Now, now, concerning food offered to idols, there's the very practical issue. There's some in the church that are saying, it's okay to eat food offered to idols. That's the practical, pragmatic issue that Paul's trying to derive spiritual truth from. Now, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, do you see the quotes around all of us possess knowledge? That's the translators telling us, and I think most assuredly, that what Paul's doing with that phrase is he's actually quoting something that these Corinthians have said in that letter they've written to Paul, and Paul is responding to that. So that all of us possess knowledge, he's quoting something back to them that they have said. Now, this knowledge about food offered to idols, you following it here? This knowledge puffs up. Whatever truth you think you have about food offered to idols, you're getting confident about that truth. And then he's going to connect the big idea here. But love builds up. So we got knowledge implied here. Your knowledge is not being expressed all that lovingly. We got knowledge, but it needs to be inextricably linked and wed with love. If anyone imagined that he knows something, you got knowledge about meat offering to idols. That's a specific thing here. Then he says this. He does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, you're not as smart as you think you are. You maybe figured something out. You maybe got some truth. But there's actually more to this truth than you realize there is. And it's puffing you up and you're getting arrogant. And then he finishes with this phrase that I think is intended to, again, in one sense, take us back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. But if anyone loves God, see the if there? He is known by God. What he's trying to say here again is for those of us who love God, here's primarily how we see ourselves. is those belonging to God. We're children of God. We see ourselves differently than the folks in the world because we belong to God and that changes everything. 
Now, I want to summarize quickly what he said here. He's not knocking knowledge. I mean, you understand in his very writing this, he's trying to increase their knowledge. Now, remember, they don't have the New Testament. 1 Corinthians is the only piece of the New Testament that they're going to have now. Paul's left them this teaching, but he's laying it out. They don't know that much, but he's not knocking knowledge. He's not diminishing understanding in truth in the least. But knowledge not directed by love, that's the danger here. That leads to our arrogance and our being puffed up. And so we want to be careful about being overconfident about what we know. We want to be confident what we want about what we know, but there ought to be an appropriate level of humility. I love them talking to Tom Teets up here. What could he learn? Well, what he just told you is he had plenty of room to grow. That's the attitude Paul's trying to build here. And being known by God is the foundation of our lives. That is to be the determiner. That's how we reflect the mind of Christ. Now, knowing the truth about God, about faith, is critical. He's not diminishing truth here. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, here's the implication. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Do you see the quotes there again? He's quoting what these Corinthians that he's primarily addressing in this letter are saying to him. Is he agreeing with them here? Is he agreeing with them? Yes. This is important in this lesson and pulling apart this text. You got it right, he's saying to them. We know that an idol has no real existence. It's made of copper, it's made of gold, it's made of wood, it's made of plaster of Paris. I don't know what it's made of. But we know there's nothing, no God really behind it. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and earth, people may believe that there are spiritual deities out there besides the one God, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. There are many idols. We get, some of us get, that there's no real God behind those idols. You could go over there and kick over that idol, and there's no God that's actually offended. Yet for us, there is one God. The Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom uh, are all things and through whom we exist. So here's what he's saying to these folks. You guys who know. Your knowledge is right. Theologically, you are dialed in. You have absolutely gotten this right. These idols, they're meaningless because there's only one God. So let me summarize this paragraph. Having the correct theology is good. There is only one God. Now, here's some of the list of some of the names of the gods there. That It's a polytheistic culture. There's syncretism, lots of religions being mixed. That's the culture. They're just temples all over and parties at the temples all over. It's, they're just gods everywhere. Uh, 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 Fortune, Apollo, uh, Kronos. Uh, uh, you see them there, Artemis. And this is just a few of the names. So it's a, it's, it's a culture. 
But here's the important thing. Paul's writing to these guys with knowledge that he's told to be more humble. You're right. There's no God behind these idols. The implication being there, the meat is actually impotent. It's innocuous. It's harmless. It's not going to hurt a flea. Why? Because there's only one God. So here's what he tells those guys. Your theology is spot on. You have gotten it exactly right. You ready for him to move on in his argument? Oh. Though no other gods, idols do represent de demonic activity. If we're going to go to chapter 10, he is going to talk about this, and we're going to skip that for now. However, not all know that meat offered to idols is impotent. And so insisting on eating it, which you're going to argue is your right and is theologically okay, may cause them spiritual harm. However, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge? Somebody holler it out. There's only one God, therefore the meat is actually impotent. Not all who are among the church family possess that knowledge. They're not all that mature. But some, through former association with idols, it's just rampant in the culture, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Because they're less mature in this journey of faith and they haven't yet figured out as clearly as they should that there's only one God, they see you eating meat offered to an idol and they may be tempted to believe this, I can worship these idols. I can participate with Artemis and all these other idols and I'm okay because they're just not mature enough yet to understand it. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. This is important. Here's what he's saying. The meat in and of itself is inconsequential. Doesn't matter. Eat it, don't eat it. Not going to hurt you. Not going to make you any better. The point is, you got right theology, but your practicing and eating this may hurt others. Verse 9. But take care that this right of yours. We are a culture of insisting on our rights as Americans. I have heard more insisting on our rights in the last 18 to 20 months than I have heard in my prior life. We have rights, we have rights, we have rights. Do I love the rights I have as an American citizen? What do you think? I love them. And we're in a country where we fight for our rights. Hmm. Paul might encourage just a slightly different tap. But we take care that this right of yours, the right to eat meat that you understand is innocuous and impotent, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, you got the right theology, 
eating even in an idol's temple because it doesn't bother you. You know there's no real God behind it. Will he not be encouraged? And again, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and for that person, because they're not as mature, they don't understand the meats nor the innocuous, and they'll be tempted to drift back into this polytheistic lifestyle. Verse 11. Oh, if we could get this truth and live it out. Because this is what sets us apart from the folks that don't have Christ. And so by your knowledge, is their knowledge accurate and theologically correct? My brothers and sisters in Christ, please don't miss what Paul's saying here. They're right. Their knowledge is right. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Because potentially in this context, they could drift back into a, a polytheistic, syncretistic view of the world, believe all these gods are okay, and be damned. We can be right and still maybe hurt somebody. Let me summarize here. There's nothing wrong with the meat itself. Paul's acknowledging that their theology is right on. But he's worried about these immature believers that if they watch more mature believers eating it, could tempt them into participating with idols and, and they're thinking that's not a problem to worship other gods even though there's no other god. <sighs> Believing one can love Christ and participate with idols is damning. Believing there's any other way to heaven than Christ is damning. He is the way, the truth, and the life and nobody comes to the Father but through men, through him. Insisting on rights that are misunderstood by the weaker is catastrophic. Now, he's not talking here about an essential theology, an essential doctrine, an essential truth about Christ. We want to remember that. This is not a truth that we would say is in that big bucket of big ideas that are never going to be compromised. It's a less significant idea. So not considering the perspective of fellow Jesus treasures, he's going to go on. Insisting on the freedoms we have in Christ is sinning against them and Christ. But my theology is right. I'm right. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone sees you uh, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Thus, though we have true doctrine, true theology, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you can promote truth. You guys see those last words I put in red? We can be promoting truth and sinning against Christ. Ah. How many of you like truth? I'm infatuated with truth. How many of you pursue truth? Paul's given us truth here. We might get some less important theological truths or other issues right and be sinning against Christ. Bad enough that I hurt my brother or my sister. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, here he's not encouraging educating the weaker brother. Now, I find this fascinating. It's not his big point. Now, he's trying to educate everybody that doesn't have as full of understanding as he is. You're following me? And I think this will be a great question in life groups. When do we actually challenge the brother who has a less thoughtful theological perspective to stretch their theological perspective? How many of you like to do that? You understand I'm doing that every week when I stand in front of you? Every week I'm trying to do that. And I think there are times for us to do that. Paul's simply not addressing that. He's not opposed to that here. He's worried about these brothers and sisters running over people and doing damage because they're not considering their brothers in Christ. I don't think he's saying you shouldn't have conversations. But he is saying, quit insist on your own rights. Because he is giving this knowledge about how Jesus' treasures should always consider the spiritual health of others. So the last point there, therefore, we will happily forfeit the rights we have in Christ for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Make sense? Now, when do we help our brother or sister stretch and when do we just cave? Life groups have a great conversation about that. And if you're frustrated or challenged, I'd love to hear from you. I love this stuff. We don't want to keep the person with a less developed theology from growing. But here he's got a point. Those of us who love Christ, obviously, consider others. Now, the knowledge Paul's promoting, I hope you've picked up by now, has two essential ingredients. It's Christ-centered. We get the stuff about the gospel. The big idea is Right. But you want to know biblical knowledge? It's not just understanding that meat is innocuous. 
It's other-focused and loving. Now, is this a new idea for anybody here? Is this a new idea? I don't know if you've noticed, but it's just sometimes challenging to live. How many of you think I like things my way? Let me assure you I like things my way. How many of you think that I think my way is the best way? I can't quite figure out why it's not obvious to everybody I know. Because let me tell you quite frankly, it's obvious to me. So don't hear me suggesting this isn't a challenge for me as well. So what's the point for we treasurers of Jesus? We're always going to do our best to get an accurate picture of God and therefore who we are from Scripture. It's why we're so committed to Scripture around here, why our foundation is always the Bible. We're convinced God gave it to us so that we will know the truth of how this life works. And here's the truth. We can be right theologically and be sinning against Christ if we're not loving our brother and sister. There's the truth from God. We're always going to consider, therefore, the perspective of others in our enjoyment and promotion of Jesus. Now, when I say always, do I believe every minute of every day? I don't know about you, but I can sometimes get focused on my own view, which is right. Considering others, oh, that comes from the Spirit of Christ. Never compromising on the big ideas of truth who Christ is. And we're not going to insist on our own rights. Here's who we're going to be as a church. We're going to happily forfeit those, those rights for the spiritual benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if I can, I'm going to jump into just a few places where I see we might be wanting to think about this, generally speaking. We've come through the most contentious time I remember as Americans. Feels like to me it's impacted the church and pastors as I see some of the videos out there. Ooh. Insisting on our rights. I love our rights. Now, we want to be able to talk about this stuff. We want to be able to have conversations in love. So don't hear me suggesting that we each don't have a right to our viewpoint. And it probably in an appropriate context isn't healthy to talk about it. You're hearing all the caveats here? But I'm going to go back to... Uh, an old one, at least from when I was a kid, it was beverage alcohol. And for me, I'm going to list four here, but it's about sensitivity in everything. How about we start with our spouses if we're married? <laughs> huh? Yeah. Yeah. How about we start with them? 
our families, our neighbors, our church people. But when I was growing up, beverage alcohol was just seen as sinful as a kid. I just, it just was. I still remember when I read about Jesus' first recorded miracle, and it was bewildering to me in about eighth grade where he turned water into wine. What's up? <laughs> now, do not hear me promoting the drinking of beverage alcohol. Look at the damage it does to family, drunk drivers. Do not hear me doing that. But I don't believe from Scripture that just drinking beverage alcohol is a sin in of itself. It's like the meat. But we want to be considerate of others. Now, that one feels like to me one that was, I didn't drink in my early pastoral life because it was just simpler than trying to explain it to folks. But we want to be sensitive to where people are at. That's the point. We're thinking about what our actions, even though they're, it's a right spiritually, what the implications might be for others. Demonic-themed entertainment. I'm just throwing this one in real quickly. Don't hear from this that, that there's not, a, and Paul's going to deal with this in chapter 10, that there's not a spiritual influence. There's no other God but our God, but there are spiritual influences out there. Just TV, movies. I've been to one occultic film my freshman year, scared the living daylights out of me. Now, I was an unbeliever at the time, but I knew I was never going to watch any of that. But I'm just going to encourage you, uh, Ouija boards, all that stuff. Don't play with this stuff. There's one God, but don't play with this stuff. There are evil influences. There are no other gods, but there are demonic influences. So don't fool with that stuff. Politics. Some of you know there's a recall election going on in California. People are getting excited. Do I think we should be involved? But when we elevate these issues that don't even have theological consequence above what they ought to be, we don't consider where other folks are. Do I want us to be able to talk about it? I'd love to have us be able to talk about that. But particularly in that election year, the families I heard of where there was significant division based upon that presidential election. Ought not be. Now, I'm going to give you one more. I was encouraged not to mention this last one. It's too divisive. You'll tick people off. Hope not. I can't think of a theological issue today that we're confronting like food offered to idols. You following me here? I can't think of one that we're facing like that that really has deep theological convictions. It's just more about considering the uh, position of others. Anybody want to guess what the last one is? Pardon? Mass! You got a $50 Starbucks card. See Johnny Burns after the service. <laughs> and I don't want that on the church budget. That's coming out of you. <laughs> and you following what's going on with the uh, Delta variant? With mandates? 
We've got some who believe the wiser position is to not mask and not get vaccinated. I'm going to encourage you to consider the perspective of your other brothers and sisters in Christ who see differently. We've got some who believe it's wiser to wear a mask and get vaccinated. I'm going to encourage you to consider the perspective of your brothers and sisters. So what do we end up doing? 20 years since 9-11. How many of you remember where you were when you saw the towers come down and you got the news? I don't ever remember this country being as united as we were 20 years ago. 20 years later, I don't ever remember this country being, in my estimation, as divided as we are. But here's who's not going to be divided. Us. Do we have people in our fellowship that view some of these issues differently than we do? Let me assure you, if you don't think you do, you need to get out more. <laughs> Let me assure you, we have people on the spectrum on all these issues I've just mentioned. It's not being attacked from outside that unites us. It's Jesus that unites us. Amen. We have his grace. He has transformed our lives. Are we going to disagree on some of this other stuff? Yes. Are we ever going to let that get in the way of Christ and our loving one another? Folks, it's not going to happen at RCC. We're going to differ. We're going to talk. But our loving Christ and one another, nothing, folks, nothing, nothing, nothing is going to interrupt that. Are we going to continue to disagree? I hope so. I hope so. That's how God demonstrates his glory. Those of us that disagree on some of this other stuff, it does not divide us. We are united in Christ, and the world looks at us and goes, I know he thinks that, and he thinks that, and they still love each other. This Jesus guy is good. You've heard that? I love him. Now, I look at the world. I was hoping we were done with some of these conversations. We are not. They continue on. We trust God has a point to draw each of us and us corporately to him and to help us all. Love each other just a little more. And are we going to do it? We are, my brothers and sisters in Christ of my church family, of whom I find it to be a great delight to be a part of this church family. God, you are good. And you are gracious. Thanks for loving us. This world has always been hard. This broken place, it's never been easy to live in this world. Father, our prayer is that we find our hope, our foundation in you. Oh, Father, start with me. 
And I pray that you would increasingly give me eyes to see the perspectives of others for all of us. Help us to stand firmly upon that truth from which we should never be moved. But even when we stand, Father, may it be in grace and love. May we love you more and more, and may we love each other more and more, and may we get out in that world and help those folks who desperately need to meet you to see your love. That's our prayer, Father. We ask this all in the name of the one Savior, the one Lord, Jesus Christ.